This episode of Hodinkee Radio is proudly brought to you by the new Seiko Prospects Built for the Ice Diver U.S. Special Edition. Three eye-catching and colorful iteration of Seiko's 1970s Diver's Watch recreation with a vintage silhouette and a modern fit and finish. Stay tuned for more later in the show or visit SeikoLux.com for all the details. Hey, it's me, James Stacy, and in this episode of Hodinkee Radio, in honor of Halloween, we're diving into the spooky and the scary. Well, at least as much as those topics might pertain to watches. From grandfather clocks with life-or-death requirements in the heady realm of the Skull Watch to long-gone brands now back from the dead, I've got a solid cast from the land of the living and Hodinkee to help me exhume these stories from their digital resting place. First up, a fresh face to the show. She's a writer and an editor that has worked with everyone from GQ to Wealth Simple, Bon Appetit, Salon, and of course, Hodinkee. It's the ever talented Genevieve Walker. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a real treat. You uh, you, you wrote a story that I, I, I found re- really quite interesting, and I, I can't wait to get into it. Next up, I should have uh, written a new intro, but I didn't. He's the flow, the know, and a frequent presence on Hoodinkie Radio. It's our brand editor, Logan Baker. How are we doing, Logan? Doing good. Uh, excited to be here. Very nice to be on with you and Genevieve. Absolutely. And uh, finally, I've always said he was the Vincent Price of watches, though for the life of me, I have no idea what that means. It's our illustrious EIC, Jack Forster. Jack, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. <laughs> I figured you'd take the, the Vincent Price thing as the compliment that I meant it to be. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I struggle to actually unpack rationally why I take it as a compliment, but I take it as a compliment. <laughs> uh, well, he's such a special presence for sure. We'll see how spooky we get in this episode. I'm not a huge Halloween fan, but I, I think we've got some uh, some interesting topics and some stuff to dive into. So Genevieve, I want to start with your story. It's one that I really enjoyed. Um, and, and it's about a topic that is very watch central in, in that it's a clock, but I have almost no experience or understanding of like the world of grandfather clocks. So almost every sentence I was learning something. And uh, this is a story that, that uh, when we're recording, this hasn't quite been published yet, but will be published. And we believe under the title, why are grandfather clocks so damn creepy or scary? One or the other. Um, we're not sure, but we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and you could check it out. Uh, you know, we, we record these a little bit preemptively ahead of uh, some of the posting. So this is this is the story of your experience with grandfather clocks, then leading you to a kind of grander understanding of the form. I didn't know about these long case clocks. And then the song is pretty. This, this is a great story. Well, can you give us kind of a, a high level view on it? Yeah. Um, so it started, as you said, because I uh, ended up living with a grandfather clock and uh it is quirky. Um, it stops working from time to time, um, even though it's been wound. And uh, it chimes sometimes in the middle of the night. And um, so I think it's profoundly creepy. My husband does not. And then this led to the story. So what I learned is that once upon a time, grandfather clocks weren't called grandfather clocks. They were referred to as long case clocks or tall clocks. And they started with a pendulum and the pendulum was put in a box. And uh, so there, therefore, you had the long case or the tall clock. In the 1800s in England, there was a beautiful long case clock in a hotel called the George. And there's this myth about a man named Henry Clay Work. Real person, the, the story is a myth. We don't know. 
he was an American, American songwriter. So we don't know if he actually went to England, but as the story goes, he was at the hotel and he learned about the clock in the lobby. And it was a beautiful grandfather clock made in maybe 1825, thereabouts, maybe before. And what he learned was the clock kept perfect time. And it belonged to a man named Jenkins who owned the hotel with his brother. And he got the clock when he was born. So the clock was keeping perfect time until the Jenkins brother, the older, uh, died. And then the clock started losing time, up to 15 minutes every day. And no one could figure out why, no one could fix it. And they kept on with this until the other brother was 90 and he died. And then the clock just stopped and it would never tell time again. Some say that this is just a ploy by the hotel to not put the effort in to fix the clock, <laughs> but whatever, it's a good story. And um, Works, the songwriter, heard this story and was so inspired, he wrote a song called My Grandfather's Clock. And the lyrics are from the perspective of a kid, I guess, um, talking to his grandfather. And it tells a story that's very similar to the story about the Jenkins brother. The clock was given to someone, um, the grandfather, when he was born, it, it you know, it lasts until the person's 90 and then it just stops working. And the song is profoundly weird, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, and it was a mega hit in um, the U.S. when it was released in 1876. And uh, so now we call them grandfather clocks. And my favorite tidbit that I did not put in the article, so this is some extra, Ooh. is that the song has been covered by many people, including Johnny Cash and John Fahey okay. and Boys to Men. Um, so <laughs> there's some uh, fun great. Google evening for you. You can listen to all those versions. It is really funny. And 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 when you when you listen to the whole thing about this story and and the brothers and then it dying at the end, it has this kind of Edgar Allan Poe vibe to it. And and then the funny thing is, is you read further off on in your story and, and it kind of links up to the a modern day sort of expression of the same sort of energy or more or less modern uh, compared to a grandfather clock with this being part of a, a storyline in a uh, 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone, the wonderful The Twilight Zone. I actually remember hearing the song when I was a kid and uh, every once in a while it kind of like runs through my head. And despite the fact that I've been writing about watches and clocks for as long as I've been writing about watches and clocks, it never actually occurred to me to kind of look up the history of the song. I just thought it was, you know, this weird sort of ditty that I somehow, I don't know, ran across channel surfing when I was six or something back in the 1970s. So uh, it was a very cool story to read because I had no idea that there was actually that much history behind the song. Yeah, it's really quite fascinating that there's that much to it and that that's where kind of the the, the grandfather clock thing came from. So I, I'm interested, we rewind kind of towards to the front of the story. What What is it like living with a grandfather clock now, especially as they do seem kind of haunted, inscrutable, and, and up to their own good, basically? Well, I hope my mother-in-law doesn't listen to this because it's a family heirloom that everyone loves. I think it's like living with a six foot three, like uh, speechless <laughs> human um, that stands in the kitchen and it does feel animate. I mean, the thing is, it's not, I have this, I put this in the piece, it's not at all delicate, but if you nudge it at all, it, it, it goes off balance or whatever, and then it will stop ticking. So it feels like you have this sort of like, um, I don't know, cranky grandfather standing around telling you what to do. And uh, it's very loud. When we first got uh, started living in this house, it was chiming all night long. And I thought oh, wow. I was going to lose my marbles. And my husband's like, no, you'll get used to it. It's actually really comforting. And I'm like, I, that's impossible. I can't deal with this. 
Um, so we figured out how to turn the chime off, um, which was great. And then I really liked the clock because I did like ticking is pretty comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see that. Yeah, it gets a nice rhythm. You know, it's like a heartbeat. But sometimes that little lever that you can pull to make it stop chiming drops apparently by itself. And so lo and behold, come midnight, it's like a cathedral and it's terrifying. And so at six foot three, what, what is something like this way, if you were to guess? Like like a human, so 150 pounds, something like that, or I think it's less because I have moved this thing despite warnings not to. One of the first things I learned, and I was fascinated. I didn't really. It makes sense now that you do that you consider it, but I didn't realize that they would have to be kind of established as level and then calibrated to that level, and that's how they run. And so there's not really changing that when, once you get to it, eh? Oh, listen. <laughs> I don't know. The two clockmakers I have talked to said many words. They had all kinds of things to say about this, about the expansion of the wood and the level of the floor and all the little bobs inside. I didn't retain any of that information besides what I wrote down so that I could, you know, keep this thing working. Jack, what's your experience with uh, grandfather clocks? I mean, you know, they were for hundreds of years, the only game in town, if you wanted a really accurate timekeeper, um, there was an enormous amount of effort that went into making them uh, as accurate as possible. And in the 1950s, ironically, just as uh, electronic timekeeping was really starting to displace mechanical timekeeping, pendulum clocks got super, super accurate. There were some clocks made in Russia, Fedchenko regulator clocks, that were accurate to within less than a second a year. Oh, wow. Yeah, the main thing that disturbed – one of the main things that disturbed their rate was actually the tidal forces of the moon passing overhead. So, you know, you start out trying to make a, a super accurate pendulum clock and what you end up with is a precision gravitometer. And they're, you know, they're just fantastic things. The problem with moving a pendulum clock is that the pendulum, the idea is for the pendulum to swing as freely as possible with as little mechanical interference as possible. So it's resting. The suspension for the pendulum is usually pretty delicate. And if you shift it at all, it usually disengages the crutch from the, um, you know, from the actual escapement. So yeah, they can be they can they can be pretty fussy. And Jack, is the idea that you want the pendulum to swing as freely as possible for maximum efficiency of 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 all the mechanical processes it's it's helping? So the the, the idea with any mechanical oscillator, whether it's a balance wheel or a pendulum, is that it should uh, swing with as little interference from the mechanism that it has to interact with as possible, because otherwise, you uh, you upset the sort of um, natural rate of the oscillator. Uh, so an ideal pendulum is one that is completely physically detached uh, from a clock. But of course, then you don't have a clock. You just have this thing that's kind of like, you know, swinging in midair. Cesium, madam. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and the, and the best ones, the, the pendulum was in a giant glass tube that had most of the air evacuated from it. So you had no interference from uh, atmospheric forces, changes in atmospheric pressure. The rods were made out of uh, quartz sometimes or, uh, you know, special, special alloys that uh, don't expand and contract with temperature change. Because the problem is the time that a pendulum keeps is dependent on its length. So like if you have a pendulum that's that's something like 0.995 meters, it's going to swing exactly one oscillation per second. And it doesn't matter, you know, what the material is. It doesn't, I mean, theoretically, at least it doesn't matter what the material is or what the bob is made of or anything like that. If the pendulum rod is made of a material that expands and contracts, that changes length when temperature changes, then you're going to have a clock that's going to run fast or slow depending on whether or not it's hot or cold. So they're like – they're really simple mechanisms in a lot of respects. And yeah, they have to be on an absolutely level surface. And the super, super accurate ones were kept in underground temperature-controlled vaults on bases made of uh, poured concrete and steel. And uh, there's there's a great story that, you know, speaking of like weird behavior from from pendulum clocks, there was a, a, a researcher in the UK back in the 1970s who couldn't figure out why occasionally 
when the wind was blowing, his clock, which was in an underground vault, would start going off its rate. And he finally figured out that it was because there was an oak tree 100 yards down the road that when the wind blew would cause the ground to move just enough to upset the uh, the rate of the pendulum on the clock. So, uh, yeah, if there, you know, I mean, if you're, if you were looking for, uh, impossibly temperamental, um, pendulum clocks are the way, <laughs> they're definitely the way to go. You know, Jack, I, I think only you could have said all of that. And within moments of saying, you know, they're really simple things. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like this might not be a really simple thing. Uh, Logan, any, any experience with, um, I don't know, uh, grandfather clocks, tall clocks, long clocks. Uh, no, no, not really. Uh, I'm sad to say. I mean, I, I do find kind of pendulum-based timekeeping to be tremendously fascinating, and uh, I really enjoyed reading Genevieve's story. And um, I, I do kind of just want to pause and say that I really love um, your writing, Genevieve, and I think it's awesome that you know this is a kind of story that Hodinkee five years ago wouldn't have been told on the site. And and I love that we're kind of bringing in that more kind of narrative form of writing. And I think it's just, um, I think it turned out really fun, really, really nice. And kind of the the basis of it is fun. Um, it's interesting. And I, I, I'm excited to see the, the reaction. So that's, that's all I've got. Um, not much experience with grandfather clocks, but uh, it's a really cool story. So I'm excited for everyone to read it. I, I mean, I think the story really does kind of capture the sort of telltale heart quality that grandfather clocks can have, you know, the long case clocks can have. I don't, you know, when I was, I was reading it, and it occurred to me that, I mean, one of the things they're reminiscent of other than being approximately the height of a human being with a face where a human face would be is uh, they're kind of coffin shaped. The inside looks like bones, kind of some bone like elements. I, I, I was interested in this because I, I, like I said at the top, I don't I don't know that much at all. I mean, I think most of what I know about grandfather clocks, I just learned in the last few minutes and, and in the Genevieve's piece. And then I started Googling it around and I was like, oh, maybe I'll find a book that would that would kind of walk me through it. Like maybe there's a the equivalent of the Longitude book, Dava Sobel's book, but maybe I could read one about grandfather clocks. And I did find that you can buy a, a wide variety of them on Amazon. Um, and now I'm really curious is like, what do you get from Amazon with a grandfather clock? Could I, could I, could I make it sensitive enough to pick up the moon? Probably not, right? The, the ones on Amazon, are they actual pendulum based or are they... You know, it, it looks like it. I mean, okay. I, like I said, I, I, I got to, I got to, pre- I got a strong preface on this one. I don't really, it looks like a clock to me. <laughs> they definitely are all called grandfather clocks and they range. You know, there's some here for three, four hundred dollars to, um, to, you know, big two, three, four, five thousand dollar units. And, and I'm sure the sort of family heirloom ones are, are an order of magnitude or could be an order of magnitude above that in terms of cost. And, and, uh, you know, when, I guess when it breaks that it's almost like when you have like some, a plumbing problem, someone has to come to your house and kind of see that specific scenario. Yeah. There's a German company called, I think it's, um, Sattler. I haven't looked at their stuff in years, but they actually make, um, a variety of high precision pendulum clocks for people who are nutty enough to want to have one in their home. And, uh, you have to have somebody come and make sure that it's level and, uh, you know, get the whole thing set up properly. And, um, yeah, it's, it's like, it's a process and, uh, you have to put them, if you're going to, if it's a, a wall mounted pendulum clock, it has to be put on a, on a masonry wall, not a wooden one, ideally, because, uh, you know, you'll get less movement. Genevieve, does yours chime? Uh, is, it, is it an hour striker? Or does it chime the quarter hours as well? Yeah, quarters. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah that that can if 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 you've got full strike mm-hmm. going twenty four hours a day, um, they're like super loud, and mm-hmm. it can just really drive you bananas. <laughs> we always get a laugh. Um, you know, there's a where where I grew up down the hill from where I grew up. There's a church, and uh, they replaced their bell with speakers, and now they play like a MIDI file of a hymn. 
but it's out of tune and there's no way to change it. And you just sit there at your parents and you're like, well, I don't think we need this noise. I'm not, I'm not sure this is adding anything to the day. I know it's noon now. I do know that much, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just sometimes you sit there and go like, is that really the note you wanted to play on that? With these ones, with the, do you, do you enjoy the, the actual sound it makes, assuming it makes it at an appropriate time of the day? Yeah, well, yeah, it's quite nice. Yeah, it's a very, it's a lovely sound. Although I do associate it with, I, I don't know, it, it feels fusty to me. It doesn't, it's not necessarily the, the melody I want in my kitchen. It doesn't have like a boys to men vibe. Right, correct. Yeah, good though. <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to try. I'm gonna have to try and find that find that version of that song. That's hilarious. That's so funny. And then with the with the Twilight Zone story, it 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 kind of brings you full circle on this idea of the of the the clock has to kind of be kept alive, but it might be keeping its care its owner or uh, caretaker alive. Uh, I I really I definitely suggest people dig up um like get into this story and then see if maybe you can find uh, pieces of that on YouTube or something something similar. I know a lot of it is uh, a lot of that show is online. Although that, that is that a was that a pretty well-known episode? That's not one that I specifically remember. I actually have no idea, but it's on Hulu actually. Oh, well, so go. it wasn't like a deep cut that I had a hard time finding, although at first I thought it was Yeah, it's got um Edwin. Yeah, who you'd said was uh, Albert in Mary Poppins. Right, who sings a song, I Love to Laugh, uh, which adds an element of the bizarre to the episode. But yeah, it's a really fun episode, and it has that sort of like that metaphysical bent that the Twilight Zone takes a lot of its subject matters. I, I always like those. Um, it's Twilight Zone, Jack, where the it's what's his name at the start doing the imagine if you will, and he paints a he paints a scenario for you. Rod Serling, yeah. Should, I should have. I de- Rod Serling, thank you. I definitely should have written one of those for the top of the show. This is a, ma- a major error because <laughs> I can I could probably get somewhere close to his voice. Submitted for uh, your approval. W- a pendulum yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great stuff. Well, Genevieve, I think this story was super fun. I'm I'm now into grandfather clocks. I'm I'm going to see if I can find a book or two to go a little deeper, or maybe I'll just keep talking to Jack. I like the idea of these really the ones that are so accurate that like a tree nearby. It can mess with them. I think sometimes we ignore the fact that some things are that there isn't a world in which things are that interconnected. The various disciplines of the world do actually overlap and, and touch each other in some ways. And that, that's, that's wild to me. But the moon is one thing. I mean, you see the effect of the moon's pull every day if you live near any major body of water. But to imagine that the wind on an oak could actually be moving your house enough to throw off a, a very fine mechanical regulation system is i think that's just very cool super fun it's it's definitely one of the wackier uh things that make your clock uh run improperly stories that i've ever read (laughs) i don't know like i was thinking about this while i was reading the story genevieve it's um i mean like watches seem like they seem like you know they're attached to your body they seem like kind of friendly and fun you know just sort of in general as a class of objects but there's something a little like menacing about uh, a long case clock you know i mean the, the fact that it kind of approximates um the shape and size of a human body and that it's got a face where the you know where a human face would be you just kind of i mean if you're alone in the house with one you could kind of convince yourself it's like staring yes. at you you know <laughs> while you're trying to cook <laughs> i i agree no i i think that's an interesting point because um you know i, I was recently doing some research and, and reading about sundials in, in ancient rome and uh the first time they brought kind of sundials to ancient rome the public grew to hate them because they were uh, placed in kind of areas uh, in, in the center of town and all of a sudden it, it was viewed as a vessel of kind of oppression 
of uh, for the the leaders to kind of tell people where they want to be at, at, at what time. And, and today, you know, time dominates everything. We've accepted this uh, oppression of life, but there was a kind of period in time in, in ancient Rome and, and even uh, before then where the traditional clock didn't govern life to that degree. And it was a symbol of intimidation to people. And um, it just kind of the fact of, of uh, a grandfather clock being kind of scary made me think of that. I mean, it's a different kind of scary, you know, more kind of uh, animal farm or 1984 uh, and less, you know, boo. But yeah, still interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, we for our sins, we, we got Google Calendar. <laughs> That's where we're at now. <laughs> we're thrilled to be yet again supported by Seiko and their U.S. special edition prospects built for the Ice Diver Trio the SPB 261, 263, and 265. Measuring 42.7 millimeters wide and powered by Seiko 6R35 automatic movement, the Special Prospects collection is marked by three special dial variations meant to capture the wide range of colors seen in polar ice. The dials feature a subtle fume gradient as well as an ice texture that adds visual interest and depth. From a cool gray to a light blue and a deep radiant green, these Seiko Prospects U.S. Special Editions add an extra appeal to the classic 1970s shape and 200 meters water resistance offered by these vintage-themed Prospects divers. Priced at $1,400 and available via U.S. Seiko Lux locations, visit the show notes for all you need to know about this trio of polar-themed dive watches. And a big thanks to Seiko for supporting this episode. Now, back to the show. Tying back in towards the the rest of the show, the the next story that I'd love to jump to would be Jack's look at skull watches, which I think are a neat thing because it, it's fun to talk about them, whether it's a uh, you know Halloween or otherwise. But they're a, a very kind of specific avenue in watch design um, that that does kind of pop up in specific places. They're so unconventional, but they they at the same time they they have a lasting charm. So Jack, what, what's the appeal of the of the skull watch? I think it depends on when in history you are looking at skull watches. So there's there's basically two kinds of skull watches. The first skull watches were made in the 1600s, you know, more or less, and uh, they were a fairly popular niche product from most of the major European centers for for watch and clock making. And they were shaped like skulls. They were pocket watches in the shape of you know miniature skulls. So uh, I mean, if you can imagine some sort of like tiny humanoid organism with like a you know a silver skeleton, that's what a skull watch uh, kind of looks like. And the the general consensus is that they were intended to be what are called memento mori. So these are, you know, reminders of mortality, reminders of the unavoidability of death, a reminder to sort of, you know, live your life in a humble fashion, even if you're rich enough to afford one of these because they were like super duper expensive. You know, you would still carry one around to sort of, I guess, like show that you still had some moral fiber left despite being, um, you know, an aristocrat. And then they kind of fell out of favor for a couple of interesting reasons. Um, one of them is that a, a watch that's the shape of a skull does not fit in a pocket particularly well. So something happened uh, in this, you know, changes started to happen in clothing in the 1700s and early 1800s. Pants started to have pockets and a vest started to have pockets. And all of a sudden, a lump of silver shaped like a, you know, shaped like a skull is, you know, I mean, it's, it's if you're Beau Brummel, it's destroying the silhouette of, you know, your vest that you took, you know, six fittings in order to get to, you know, hug your chest exactly correctly. So um, it became more of a novelty item. I think the Victorians were kind of into them, but again, you know, pretty much as novelty items and they sort of transitioned into being used as, um, you know, really more as desk clocks than as something that you would carry around. And um, 
then they kind of vanish off the face of the earth. You know, as the wristwatch takes over from the pocket watch, um, nobody seems to have the slightest interest in putting skulls on watches really until the 2000s. I, I mean, I haven't done a systematic survey, but there aren't like Patek Philippe skull watches from like 1956. You know, there aren't like, there aren't like perpetual, you know, fine perpetual calendar Rotropont chronograph watches from, you know, like Vacheron that like also happen to have like skulls on the dial because, you know, ooh, time is spooky. So, you know, we get, we get into the 2000s and all of a sudden, like, you know, mechanical horology suddenly becomes what it was in the 1600s, which is, you know, sort of entertainment for rich people rather than, um, you know, something that you actually need. And so we see this, like, resurgence in the use of skulls as a decorative motif. And the funny thing is, I feel like the skull as a symbol on a wristwatch lands, you know, in the 2000s, lands pretty differently than a watch shaped like a skull does in the 1600s. You know, if it's like 1660 and you're carrying around a skull watch, you know, I mean, you're, you're surrounded by the reality of death. People died at home. Um, you know, it was something that was part, just a part of everyday life. And, you know, so it really was a very, very straightforward, remind, you know, reminder of death, reminder of mortality. But, you know, now if you buy like a Richard Mille, you know, $300,000 Richard Mille watch, you know, with a skull – on the dial, you're sort of you're not you're not saying, oh, I fear death, I fear its consequences, I should lead my you know life with circumspection. You're saying, I am a baller, and look at this fucking skull on my watch. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like the meanings become completely inverted. Yeah, and and it is kind of interesting that you know with the the roots is in, in being something of a memento mori, because I think in some ways that's what people that's what draws people to an appreciation of watches in general is the fact that they do suggest and measure a non-infinite resource that we all have to essentially atone for at some level. And, and I think that um, it, it, it's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's too on the nose, but it does feel very uh, kind of specific to have not only a, a skull that also manages to keep time. I, I mean, you know, it's pretty on the nose. I mean, the reality is like, you know, we were just talking about how creepy grandfather clocks can be. You know, there's something, this, this weird mechanical semi-sentience that they have and, you know, the ticking sound of time passing that you can't avoid when you're like, you know, trying to get an Oreo out of the box. And um, I think that, uh, I think, I mean, every watch is basically a skull watch if you think about it, right? I mean, you know, if you want, every single watch is a visible, physical, tactile reminder of the inescapable passage of time and the, you know, the unidirectionality of time's arrow. So like, do you really need to like put a skull on it to drive the point home? I, I, I would argue probably not, but you did highlight some pretty good examples in the story. So, you know, still read the story and take a look at it. You know, I'm trying to think of, of, of these three. You've got four links here in our notes. I think the only one I've seen in person are, are the Fiona Kruger stuff. And I've always been a fan. It wouldn't make any sense on my wrist. Like it doesn't, it's, it doesn't align with my personal style. But the way that they're made. You don't think you could, uh, you don't think you could wear a 50 millimeter high Calavera skull watch? Probably not. You know, just a, I'm, a, I'm a Seiko dive watch guy. I look at a skull watch and really enjoy it. I'm not sure I could just pull it off. But uh, she's such a lovely presence and a very talented uh, I- individual and, and a very kind of like um, fresh face. If you, if you know the, the way that most of the Swiss watch industry looks or the watch industry around the world looks. I love the color. I love what's, you know, kind of borrowed or, or kind of referenced from Mexican culture uh, and that sort of thing. And, and I think a lot of that's really lovely. Uh, Jack, of these ones, you've got one from Louis Vuitton, the Fiona Kruger, an Hermes, and one of these uh, skull, the silver skull watches from the 1600s. Uh, where do you land on these? What, what do you think is the archetype of a modern skull watch? 
Because these are three very different takes. They are, yeah. I mean, I would love to have a silver skull watch from the 1600s sitting on my desk just because, you know, I mm-hmm. can like kind of like steeple my fingers and go, so time, it passes, doesn't it? The silver one's really um, cool. It's, it's, it's very cool. I don't know. Of the, of the other ones, the thing that I love about the Louis Vuitton watch, which is, you know, it's just one of these like crazy, like mid, mid to high six figure. So it's a minute repeater. And it also shows the time on demand. Um, when you push the slide to activate the repeater, the tail of the snake points out the hour and the skull drops and you see the words carpe diem. And then it, uh, and it chimes the time. And like, I feel like if you're going to do a skull watch nowadays, that's the way to do it. Just like lean into it, you know? Um, well, I mean, the skull watch and carpe diem, we're, we're really, yeah, we're, it's a, I mean, there's a snake right on there. It's not yet eating its own tail, but we're getting there, I think. Yeah, but see, like that's, but that's, that's the exhortation, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not like you're going to like, you know, it, if it's 1660, the message is you're going to die, live your life with circumspection. You know, if it's like 2000, 2020, the message is uh, go out and have a great time. Look how fun this cool skull is. Yeah. <laughs> That one, the, that Louis Vuitton one, always looks like the like a an opening credit from a Bond movie to me. Oh yeah, it just has that like hyper stylized, really. Kind of, it's beautiful. It, it's a lot, but it's it's also it's it's beautiful and cool. Genevieve, where where do you land on the idea of like a, a modern skull watch, memento mori that you might actually wear around? Have you ever been walking down the boardwalk in Venice and bought one of those little? I think that's what they're called, like a sugar skull. Yes, I'm actually a big fan of those. Me too. I think memento mori. Listen the wrong decade for that i feel like we got too much of it every day um but i suppose so yeah i do i like the idea of the skull on the desk i think that's pretty cool there's a little bit there's a little bit of like like the the iconography even extends beyond the timekeeping when it's on your desk it's a little bit shakespeare it's a little bit kind of academic and in sort of old world all at the same time Logan, any, any, have you had a chance to see the LV or the, the I know you, I'm pretty sure we've stood in the same room with, with Fiona in the past. So I'm sure you've seen her stuff. Yeah, uh, definitely met Fiona and just wanted to echo what you were saying, James, you know, a lovely person, lovely human oh, yeah. um, and a uh, wonderful designer and uh, definitely a fresh voice in the industry. Uh, I was actually thinking about her pretty recently and I, I feel like we haven't heard much uh, from her and maybe you know, since the pandemic started. So I'm hoping to uh, see what she's working on very soon. And, you know, we should send her a note just to check in. That'd be cool. For sure. And, you know, I, I also wanted to kind of shout out the the Bell and Ross skull watches. I think those are um, genuinely oh, kind yeah. of uh, interesting. I mean, I know some people look at them and are like kind of who who's buying as a square skull watch. But I think people kind of miss the point with that. I mean, this is like a genuine piece of... Uh, uh, it's an automaton, you know, it's for your wrist. And uh, the for people who haven't seen them, uh, the skull has a mouth that opens and closes. And um, I think it's, I think they're really cool. And Jack, you might correct me if I'm wrong, or, or is that movement based on a B&B concept movement from the like late 2000s? You know, there you have me. I have to admit, I am not particularly up on my Bell and Ross skull watches. Uh, the one that I'm, the, the ones that the, the one that I'm most familiar with is the one with the glow in the dark mm. skull on the dial. And you know, I mean, I have this like helpless love of anything that glows in the dark. Um, <laughs> you know, from when I was a very small child, and um, you know. I mean, it's it's actually part of the reason that I got interested in watches. I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, they glowed in the dark. And uh, I'm old enough, actually, to remember my dad's Benris, which is one of the last, probably one of the last watches made that actually used radium on the dial. And it just, you know, glowed like a bandit at night. But I mean, you know, 
giant glow in the dark skull on a giant square watch. I mean, you you you, know, you either love it or you hate it, and if you love it, you're really going to love it. Yeah, yeah, and you, it's not going to be the kind of thing that you accidentally show up to the party and someone else has on, right? Definitely not. But where I was kind of going is, uh, I mean, again, I'm not positive if the skull watch is based on a BNB concept movement, but I, I know some of the tourbillon pieces, some of the high complication pieces that Bell and Ross has done in the pa- have done in the past are based on BNP concept pieces from you know 10 years ago and uh, BNB concept was kind of this high complication studio that uh, Reja Prajepi uh, of Curvia uh, worked at for a number of years and kind of led a division there it was eventually acquired by Hublot and uh, one of the kind of base modules i think that was used for the AKO2 AKO3 Rajep forgive me if i'm wrong is based on uh, a BNB concept piece that's also used by Bell and Ross so i think it's really interesting that you can see both this kind of same base movement, obviously executed very differently. The curvia is, uh, you know, finished to a much uh, higher degree, but you can see the same kind of base movement in a Bell and Ross and in a curvia. And, and most people would never know that. I mean, there's so much within the this industry that it kind of takes a, you have to dig a little deeper to see these connections. And that's what I think like a Bell and Ross skull piece does. I mean, they don't just come up with that overnight. That's years of planning and work and finding a movement and, and to bring in an automaton, you know, a, a I don't know if it's a pseudo automaton or a full, like what, what you would necessarily describe it as, but I think it's a genuinely interesting uh, piece of uh, mechanical art. Very cool. Yeah, no, I, I, I had no idea that connection was there. And that's definitely fascinating. Uh, even just from a watchmaking standpoint, you wouldn't really expect those two brands to have an overlap, especially in a higher end movement, like a movement with a really insane complication. Genevieve, you've had a chance to click through those links, see, see the watches. Any of them speak to you? Well, actually, um, Something spoke to me from all of these, actually, uh, which is something I wanted to bring up. I was um, reminded of the Don Ed Hardy aesthetic from the mid-2000s. That was never my thing, per se, but I, I had an art teacher. Her name was Hung Lu. Actually, she's really influential, and she kind of um, sold Ed Hardy to our class in college, and I became I really liked him because of this, and I feel like there's some sort of adjacent, I don't know, it's it's kindred somehow, I guess, to this, like that, the tattoo culture on, on tattoos on clothes. And I, I'm not an expert in that by any means, but I think there's something interesting there too. Like, you know, as far as just the aesthetics of having a skull on a thing, that is where I would go with this conversation. And, and I think that's why I like them. It, there's something a little bit like cool and grunge and uh, scary because of the skull, but like, yeah, it's cool. You're a biker or something. Actually, you know, it's 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 funny you should mention that. I, there's probably a, a higher percentage of skulls as symbols and as you know bits of iconography and tattoos than there are like most other things. I would think so. Yeah, I hadn't considered the the tattoo crossover at all. That's I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially if you look at the aesthetic of the um, of the Louis Vuitton and in some ways the the Kruger. I could see that coming very deeply from that side of the world where you have this sort of. It's you know it's correct to how it should look, but it, it's um it's also been somewhat cartoonized for you know dramatic effect and that sort of thing and and sure you know maybe it's a, a you know a skull and crossbones or I mean the skull is a, as a a suggestion of you know a greater meaning or danger or something like that has been around for a long time but the the tattoo thing of course not not as long. Uh, so that's definitely an interesting one. The skull is definitely the most symbolically rich part of the human skeleton by far, right? I mean, like nobody's scared of a kneecap. Yeah, I, th- I would think so. 
I don't know, Jack, if you like went to bed one day and there was a kneecap on your pillow, that wouldn't scare you? Like, it's all about context, I think. I'm not sure what it looks like when it's not with, you know, a knee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, a desiccated kneecap sitting <laughs> there by itself, uh, yeah, you know, no indication how it got there, it would be more like a cause of curiosity than anything else. But if it's like sitting on a blood stain. Yeah, I'd watch that you know, Twilight Zone. There we go. Then, then you've got the beginning of a Stephen King story. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. So, uh, Logan, do you think any any here that would be left off the list if you if you wanted to make sure people could go on a deep dive of skull watches? You know, the... I'm not sure if it's necessarily a skull, but I like Mr. Jones has done some sort of like death themed watches Um, and maybe even death themed isn't fair. Maybe it's more life themed, you know, through a consideration of death. But uh, I I think they've done some stuff like that, too. Isn't it a watch that somehow counts down the number of days uh, that you have left in your life if you're going to live the like average lifespan of, um, you know, a person in your particular a watch set for your actuarial table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure my iPhone probably knows when I'm going to go. It's somewhere in the algorithm. Yeah. I, I mean, I find that sort of thing interesting philosophically. I just don't think I want to live with it. I mean, like I think about death all the time anyway, especially nowadays. I mean, you know, to your earlier, earlier point, Genevieve's like, who needs a memento? Like of all the periods in human history to not need a memento mori, what do we have? Like, you know, the, the three bubonic plagues uh, in the middle ages, um, you know, and like what we're living through right now. Absolutely. I mean, thinking of death, I mean, this is a topic I think we, we could go for a long time and I'm not sure it would necessarily uh, amount to much in terms of a watch themed podcast, but I think we're doing a, a decent job so far. We talked about death a lot in the last episode that I was in. Oh, we, we definitely <laughs> did. Yeah. Death and race car beds, common topics, really. If you're me, but speaking of, um, you know, if we're, if we're going to focus on, on death, there's also, you know, rebirth on the other side of it. And Logan wrote a really interesting story about brands that we lost at one point for any number of factors. I think looking at at least a couple of these, it was probably in the vein of the quartz crisis for some, but that are now back. And I think that that maybe leads us to a more hopeful place to end the show with the return of some some really great brands. You know, I've followed the, the kind of rebirth of Tornick Ravel recently, and of course, Aquastar not too long ago. Uh, Logan, why don't you walk us through this with the last uh, few minutes of the show here? For sure. Yeah, so uh, we're not calling them zombies. We're calling it Resurrection. But the, the four brands the story focuses on are uh, Excelsior Park, Air Rain, Tornick Ravel, like James said, and uh, there's a new kind of in a car revival uh, out of Germany called Sherpa. And I, I'm not quite sure. I'm still kind of uh, researching. I, I need to talk to the man behind the brand whose uh, last name is Clock, believe it or not, with a K, which I find very, very exciting. Um, <laughs> and maybe, yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, out of those four brands, you know, Air Rain is kind of up and running. Uh, they've been really popular on social media this year. I think they've kind of put together a really compelling value proposition um, for their version of the Type 20. They're using, it has a manual wound flyback chronograph movement for under $3,000 uh, with column wheel, uh, which I think is a really, really compelling deal. I mean, I can't think of many other manually wound chronographs under 3K. Uh, I know that the Messina Lab Uniracer comes in around there, but um, you know that's not a flyback. Yeah, the Seagull movement. Yeah. But also not a flyback. Right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I believe this uses uh, Salida. It's Swiss made. So, you know, it's a hmm. really impressive value that they've put together and uh, kind of authentic uh, looks and on a leather strap, uh, 2980. Like that's, that's, that ain't bad people. Like that's really interesting. Especially when the ceiling on type 20 stuff is so high. Yes, absolutely. Right. You're either, yeah. If you're looking at Breguet, maybe, maybe you're going adjacent and going to Breitling, um, but you're still spending way more than that. 
And, uh, and you know, the, the fact is that w- maybe they weren't around, concur- you know, without, without a break, but Orain has, has a, you know, a connection to that, to that design and that oh, aesthetic. And, and certainly it's, uh, it, it is in there is, it is in some way theirs. Uh, so that, that'll be an interesting one for sure. And with Excelsior Park, are we talking, I only know Excelsior Park for their movements. Are they, is it a, a whole watch brand that they're spinning up? Yeah. Yeah. So Excelsior Park was a watch brand that I was not super familiar with, you know, uh, a year ago, I would say. And then we got a, a few pieces in uh, to the Hoden Key shop and to our vintage section selection. And uh, I was able to see a few in person from, uh, you know, Brandon and Sayori, our, our dear friends. And um, I was really impressed with uh, the designs. The, the piece that I had in my hands kind of resembled a Corelli, a Zenith Corelli. And like you mentioned, James, Excelsior Park uh, is well known for the movements. And they they uh, um, made chronograph movements for, for Galet. They were particularly associated mm-hmm. with Galet. Uh, they made them for Zenith. They made them for Gerard Perigo um, from the 50s to the 70s, I think, maybe a little before that, too. And it's just a name that I don't think a lot of people know. And I'm excited for more people to discover it. You know, maybe not excited for the corresponding jump in uh, prices that the vintage pieces will see. But, you know, uh, anything that's good yeah. for the market, I think, is uh, good. And I'm all about people kind of uh, learning more about what was in the past. And, and Excelsior Park was definitely kind of an inside baseball gym that I think... Um, people will be kind of excited to learn more about. And Jack, I think you know the uh, guy that's behind it, Guillaume Lede. He is the man who brought back uh, Neva de Grinchen a year ago, two years ago, and has been very successful in doing that. I actually didn't realize he was also behind Excelsior Park. I connected with him over, I connected with Excelsior Park Instagram and DM'd him, even though I could have, I have Guillaume's email and could have just emailed him. I had no idea that it was the same guy doing it, but I was able to reconnect with him. and, And I think he's doing a really kind of, Really impressive job with it. Yeah, in the past, I had a I had a crack at a, a Galet with an EP forty, and uh, the only thing I remember this was years and years ago. It would have been probably my first like vintage watch of any value, and of course the the Galet prices are through the roof now, so it would have been a good purchase. And I just remember a friend of mine saying like, "Hey, they're a good movement, but they're finicky and they're difficult to get serviced, just because there weren't they didn't make it wasn't like buying a Vajo seventy two or something where like a lot of people." had some experience with these, at least with the 40. I, I remember I was, I did get warned by kind of a, a deep galley head. He's like, they're sick. They're like super sick, but you have to really want what they are. Cause some of the other things can be kind of difficult in terms of yeah, getting them serviced and making sure they run properly and that kind of thing. And we'll throw in, we'll throw in um, whatever I can find on the EP, even just to see an EP 40, just look at a photo of it. They're like very, very cool, you know, very busy sort of um, hand-wound chronograph movements. Can, can I ask you guys a question? Of course, just to circle back to the in, in, in the spirit of my periodically injecting sweeping generalizations, I mean the the entire Swiss watch industry, the entire mechanical watch industry, is kind of a zombie industry, isn't it? Oh, one hundred percent. It was really on it was on its way out in the nineteen seventies, and you know you look at trade publications from the seventies, and there were like serious discussions about just switching all production of watches in Switzerland over to quartz, and uh, here it is, you know. Uh, I mean, maybe zombies unfair, you know, I mean, you, you, you think of these, uh, you know, insensate creatures wandering around who can barely get it together to say brains every once in a while. And, you know, <laughs> the watch industry is so much more vital than that. But it is kind of back from the dead, right? Low these 20 years. Uh, in another way, um, you know, I, I think we all like to think of uh, watches, watch collecting, watchmaking as an intellectual pursuit. And, you know, zombies, it's also an intellectual pursuit. They're just after brains, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> directly intellectual <laughs> or directly a pursuit your choice 
but yeah, so I think uh, I think that's probably a show. I, I think this was fun. I'm I'm not really sure what the uh, the concrete overlap between Halloween and watchmaking is, but I think we've shown that there's some. I I'd absolutely recommend people uh, check out Genevieve's piece on uh, the grandfather clock, and then start googling grandfather clocks. It's a weird, fun world. Um, if you know interesting grandfather clocks, put them in the comments. I want I want that. I need that in my life for the next little while for sure. And uh, Jack Skull Watches always good. Uh, Logan, I'm looking forward to reading all the detail in in the piece about the these brands that we're fortunate enough to have back. So uh, to all three of you, thanks so much for being on the show. It was it was a treat to have you. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, James. Thank you, James. All right, and if you're listening and enjoying the show, leave us a comment below or tell a friend. Can't ask for much more than that. Otherwise, uh, we'll chat to you in about a week's time. 